Welcome to this message from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. City Bible Church is a vibrant community of people with one common desire to experience God, enjoy people, and celebrate life. This particular month, our theme is love for the house. Month of November is a great month because we move into the gratefulness of Thanksgiving where we reflect and think about all that has happened in life and for us and that we can be so thankful to God whose hand is over our life and so we will reflect on that. Then we move right into Christmas where we get into the spirit of giving and help people and give out. And We do a lot of things individually, personally, and also corporately to help families and just have the joy of giving and lifting up someone else's life and need. All about being thankful. It's all about giving out someone else. Love for the house. First of all, I want to talk about the word love for just a few minutes. Love for whatever that for might be. Love for one another, love for God, love for church, love for Bible, love for Holy Spirit, love for life, love for friends, love, love for food, love for coffee, love for sports. I always get a little uh, uh, chuckle, tickle in my in my concept of watching television when I watch the sports program and yesterday watching the Ducks win again. I have a friend who passes up in Washington, so I text him during the game, you know, hey, what's wrong? He's a pastor of a great church up there, and they have some of the Husky players in their church. So I text him when they did the little fake kick play and they scored the first three points. I said, oops, no one's watching. And so I was just kind of encouraging him along with the game. And so, uh, but watching the duck fans, would any of you ever dress up like some of those duck fans that actually put duck bills and duck hats and all kinds of painting? And then they go crazy when the cameras come in all ages. I mean, these are not just young people. These are people your age that are doing that. And so everyone is into it because they are so passionate about football and about their ducks. Of course, right now it would be number one, something to be passionate about. But they, they would be passionate if the ducks were probably number eight because they just love the game and they want to be passionate about sports. Have you ever gone out with someone to have a special meal and they're really passionate about the food they were eating and they kept saying to you, oh, oh, this is so good. Oh, this, t- this is wonderful. Oh, this is to die for. This is awesome food. And do you almost want to say to them, just be quiet and let me eat. They're just so passionate about their food and they're going on and on about it. Have you ever been with somebody watching a movie and they want to tell you how good the movie is during the movie? How, come on, anybody been there? And they keep saying, oh, isn't that good? Oh, isn't this? Oh, this is so much fun. You want to say, shut up. But you don't, you know, because they're passionate about what they're doing. They're passionate about the movie they're watching or passionate about the food they're eating or passionate about some sport they want or passionate about. What are you passionate about? What is your love meter when it really focuses on that one, two or three things that you're very passionate about? Most of us would be passionate about family. Relationships, older you get, when you get married, when you have children, all that, that, there's a passion there that doesn't match anything. There's a passion for your children that's beyond any other passion you would have ever felt. A love, a deep, deep, deep love for those children. Do anything for them. Watch them grow 
And you're so passionate about them, sometimes it's hard to see their flaws. Sometimes it's hard to see what's ugly about them. Have you ever had somebody bring up a really ugly baby to you and just say to you, this is the most, look at my beautiful baby. This is the most beautiful baby. And you're looking, you're thinking, that is, that is not a beautiful baby. But in the eyes of a mother, every baby is absolutely beautiful. And you better drool over that baby and say, this is the most gorgeous baby I've ever seen in my life. Why? Because all babies are beautiful. Can I hear an amen? The passionate person cannot see the flaw or the ugliness because they're passionate. They cannot see the problem because they are so passionately in love with the person. Passion, love. Here's what some young children respond to a question of, how would you define love? What is love to you? These are six, seven, eight, and nine-year-olds. This is their response. If falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. Okay, I'm in on that one. That's pretty smart. How do you get two people to fall in love? Six-year-old says, well, you, you find one person with freckles and you find another person with freckles and you get the two freckles to like each other's freckles. <laughs> Pretty smart. I mean, that, that's starting somewhere. How about this kid? Nine years old. Love is like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. <laughs> How about this one from a young girl? Most men are brainless. So you have to try more than once to find a live one. That's a nine-year-old. I think she's been listening to her mother. An eight-year-old says, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something like that, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. Eight-year-old. When two people love, they kiss. And when you love someone and you kiss them, you will fall down on the ground for an hour. I've not experienced that. Another one. No one is sure why it happens. But I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so important to people wanting to fall in love. Well, when you are finding love in anything, whether it's a person or a sport or a thing or however it is, love does have an energy to it, a passion to it. It does do something to change the way you live. Love for a house. We all build houses. I'm my own house right now. As an individual, before I was ever married, I was my own house. I built my own house. That is my life, my apartment, my dorm, my whatever was my house. 
Well, before I was married, my house had a particular aroma to it. It would be where a man lives. It would be, I'm not very particular about every hanger has something on it. I think chairs are built to hang things on, desks. Floor has more space than anything. And so my house was kind of like me and what I valued. I didn't value everything decently in order and absolutely squeaky clean in my dorm. wasn't my value. But then you get married. And all of a sudden, there's two people that have a value for the house. And then you come together and you start building a home, a house. And that house begins to, well, the house is kind of like a piece of clay. It, it gets molded. It, it forms around you. The pictures on the wall, the photos you frame, the food you cook, the way you live, how you clean, how you paint, how you go and come. The house begins to take on a feeling. And that feeling is very distinct to that house. When I was a young man, first involved with Bible college, Brother Kevin Connor now uh, is in Australia. That's my wife's father. He was a dean of the college, but I had no eyes for Sharon at this point. I just had eyes for the Bible and wanted to learn more about the Bible. And so Brother Connor was my teacher, and I used to go to his house, and he would take me through the Scriptures two hours every week in a personal discipleship program because I asked him to do it, and he was willing to do it. I would go over there on Friday afternoons, and his wife, Joyce, would make us a cup of tea, and we would sit there, and we would go through the Bible for two hours exact. He would have me come at an exact time, leave at an exact time. That was our time. No one else could disturb we do the Bible. I can remember going into the house and having a distinct smell that I could smell in the house that I could not put my finger on. It was not brownies. It was not a cake. It was not food. It was not, you know, something that had been cooked. It was not something she sprayed in the room. It used to drive me crazy because I could not pinpoint the smell. But as soon as you opened the door to their house, here was this dominant smell. Well, I wasn't about to ask Brother Connor, and what is this smell that you have in your house? So I would bypass that, but it was a dominant smell, and I knew it. Later on, I marry their daughter. We establish our first little house, and lo and behold, the smell had transferred. And I was baffled. I was absolutely baffled. So finally, after we were married a few weeks, because I didn't think it was kosher for me just to say to Sharon, and what's the smell? Not knowing how she might respond because it's her family smell. So finally, I said to her, there's a smell in our house that you had in your house because I remember the smell and I don't know what it is and I want to know what it is. She says, what are you talking about, Frank? And I tried to describe it. She says, be more specific. I said, how do you be specific on a smell? I said, it kind of smells like, and uh, it smells like somebody just, you know, I don't know. It smells like, and finally she pinpointed, she goes, oh, I know what it is. She says, come in here. She opened the drawer, she lifted up some clothes, and in the clothes was some mothballs. And she had mothballs in every cupboard, every drawer every closet, 
every hanger, everything that was in storage, mothballs were ruling our house. And because of that, there was this dominant smell that had been transferred as a legacy into my house. And I still have it. Our house has traditions to it. What we eat, Thanksgiving, is a tradition. When we eat is a tradition. How we eat is a tradition. Everybody's names is by the plate. Used to, now the kids don't always cooperate with me. I used to have each one of them go around the room, give me a scripture and what they're thankful for before we would eat. But now, the older they get, they do that very quickly. I'm thankful we have food. Can we eat? Let's talk about what we're thankful for. So we would do that. Christmas Eve, we've never ever had a Christmas Day Christmas. We are a Christmas Eve group. We have the same food for 34 years at Christmas Eve. German pancakes. We have the same food on Christmas Day. Not ham, because we don't want to go to heaven sooner. We have lamb, because it's biblical. No, it's traditional for Australia. And so we have the same lamb dinner. I can't remember if we ever had anything different. It's our tradition. It's our house. It's what we do. How we open presents on Christmas is everybody has to open one present, acknowledge who it's from. Everybody kind of goes off on that one present, and then we go to the next one. It takes a very long time. Nobody gets to open a present. And if you open one out of turn, we take all your presents, and you have to wait two times. So you have to focus. We want you to rejoice with someone else's present before you rip your own apart. Just a little culture. Everybody has culture. Every house has values, traditions, aromas, principles. My house is my most favorite place. My study is my most favorite room. What I do in that study is my most favorite thing in life. It's my passion. Pray, study, read books, and do some Facebook and do some Internet stuff, but it's my office. When I study at home, which is usually all day on Fridays, sometimes all day on Thursdays, I don't get up and put on a suit. I get up and put on my pajamas, my wool pajamas with a wool top. I don't shave. I don't shower. And I go to my office and I work like that. But I forget that my kids bring people over. And so they come over. And just yesterday I come out of the office and I don't know what I look like. I haven't looked in the mirror. And I'm talking to the people. My daughter goes, Dad, you you look like a homeless person. And I said, why is that? Because look at your pajamas and look at your hair. Have you looked at your hair? No. And one side of my hair was totally sticking out this way. And the other side, because I had been praying and I was kind of massaging my own head while I was praying, you know. And so the hair was everywhere. When I looked in the mirror, I I giggled and I said, yes, a very wealthy homeless man I am. A very wealthy homeless man. And so that's my house. That's where I can do and feel and live and love everything about my house. I love it. 
God has a house. He establishes that house with an aroma, with a tradition, with a feel. Everything about the house of God is supposed to be something that brings memories, emotion, identity, feeling, depth. The house of God. The house of God was never supposed to be superficial, never supposed to be religious. It was never supposed to be professional. The house of God was never built by the Lord Jesus Christ to be a house that you would come in and be stiff and religious and unattached to everything going on around you and even the people in the house. The church was never supposed to be that way. It was not built in Jesus' mind to be that way. It was built to be a house that belonged to Jesus, his house. I will build my house, my church. Every man is a builder of some house, And the Son of God is the builder of his own house, Hebrews 1, chapter 3, verse 1, and Matthew 16, 18, I just quoted. Those two verses and many others speak about the house. There's an inner city pastor friend of mine who told a story about closing up his church one Sunday after the services, a little wood-framed church down in the inner city. A little boy came up on a bicycle. Stopped, and he was watching this pastor fumble around with his keys and try to get his stuff. Little boy was watching. Finally, the little boy says, hey, mister. He's still fumbling. Mister. He looked down. The boy says, does God really live in that house? Pastor says, well, yes, yes, of course he does. He still, little boy, hey, mister. If I went into your house, would I see God? Would I hear God? Would I feel God? What do you do in the house? Well, of course you would. You would, you, I think you'd feel God. And so finally, the, the little boy then scoots up further right by the steps on his bike. He said, Mister, does God feed you in that house? Do you have food? Do you eat? Well, we have a meal, but it's not really food, but it's, you know, communion. What do you do the whole time you're in the house? Well, we, we sing and we pray and we do things. Does God do it with you? Finally, the pastor turns to this little boy and says, let me explain to you about God in the house. Because this little boy would not let it alone. So he began to explain to him what it's like to be in the house of God, the Lord's house. And as he did, the little boy, bright eyes, said, I can't wait then to come to your house. When's the next time God is in? He says, well, God's everywhere. He's not just in the house, but when we meet together, he is there in a powerful way. But the little boy all of a sudden had a different view of the house. When we talk about the house of God, love for the house, oh, you'll miss it totally if you don't hear me about church attendance. I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about church membership. 
I'm not talk, talking about just coming into a building. I'm talking about you being joined in such a way to a house that you become the house. You are the house. And that house so marks your life and so marks everything about you that the memories of that house is what drives your life and that the values that you put in your own personal house because of the house of God. And the house of God to you becomes a way of living, not a way of attending, but a way of living. I've only known three houses my whole life. One was in San Bernardino with Brother Fox, the first church I ever really became a part of after I was really born again. It marked my life. That's the first place that someone prophesied over me. Never even knew what prophecy was. That was the first place that I felt the presence of God so overwhelm me that I couldn't stand up was in that house. That was the first place that I received a call. I thought my calling was to go to the mission field. That's what I thought for, for a long time. Brother Dotswide, a missionary to Africa, was the speaker. And I found myself at the altar and the last person to leave for two hours. I wept my soul out. I mean, I was just so broken over Africa. Brother Dotswide came down and prayed with me for the longest time, talked with me about Africa. I was sure that I would join him in Africa. That was what God was doing to me. And I remember that experience. I can still see the altar, see the wood. I can even smell the carpet. I I know that experience. I remember when they laid hands on me and prophesied over me the word of the Lord. And that word so changed my whole life. I remember who did it where it was, how the chairs were, what happened at that time, how my life was moved. I remember walking out of the building thinking to myself, something has shifted in my life. I'm not sure I understand it. I was marked by the house. What was in the house was real. Like Jacob when he met God on the mountain, but he began to prophesy about the house in Genesis chapter 28 when he says, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And I didn't even know it. But God has appeared to me and God has given me a word. And he started talking about how awesome is this place. Every person needs to experience a this place, an awesome place, an encounter with God. And the house of the Lord is supposed to be a place where we encounter, where we are changed, where we are shaped, where we have an overwhelming experience with the love of God and the forgiveness of God. I can remember those times in the auditoriums worshiping in that church and also in this church as a young man, Bible Temple before it became City Bible, worshiping God and God speaking to my heart about life. It's where I found my wife was in the house of God. Where I found my lifelong friends was in the house of God. Where I dedicated my four children in the house of God. Where I want to pass legacy onto them is in the house of God. The house becomes a mark. A mark. God's house should look like this. Love for the house. Here's my definition. A house that is flourishing. Remember, you're the house. You're the house. So I'm really saying where people flourish. Are you flourishing? Growing, far-reaching, 
presence filled family, friends, laughter, tears, healing, hope, grace, place to give my whole life, my all, my heart. I love the magnificent house of God. That's what the house should be to me. I just had someone say to me this week, I don't have family, Pastor Frank. The church is my family. So I say, get counsel for, for yourself from your families that don't have family. Church is my family. When I came into the house of God at the age of 17, 18, leaving the Jesus people movement and moving on, my family was not involved whatsoever. Matter of fact, they were against everything I was doing. Even though my dad was a pastor and I was raised in a, in a home that respected God, he did not respect what I was moving into. So my family cut me off, kicked me out of the house, actually, because I became a charismatic, a tongue speaker. And for my denomination, that was demonic. That was wrong. It was not allowed. I could not live in the parsonage. My dad said, you have to move out of the parsonage. You can't be in the church's house and do what you're doing. I didn't know better. I said to my dad, would you rather have me smoke pot, take LSD, drink beer, and party than speak in tongues? He goes, yeah. He said, that would be better. He says, because speaking in tongues is demonic. Later on, he took that back because it was in the heat of an argument. He says, I would never want you to continue because I was on a, a road to destruction. I was into drugs. I was into wrong stuff. And when Christ finally got my life, filled me with the Holy Spirit, I didn't have a theology of the Holy Spirit. I didn't have a theology of the power of God. I had none of that. I had nothing. I just needed help. And Jesus came to me and overpowered me, changed my life, filled me with the Holy Spirit, and my life got changed, and I've never looked back. It worked. It worked for me, and I think it works for everyone else. If the Holy Spirit got a hold of your life, wave at me this morning. Come on, wave at me and say, the Holy Spirit has power and can get a hold of people's lives. Well, that change, and the house became my family, became a place where I would grow, and I love the presence the feel of that house. The house of the Lord is simple. This is what it is, where God's people are joined together. We are a house, a local church house, and we become a habitation for the Holy Spirit. And this is theologically correct, that in me dwells the Holy Spirit. But when we come together corporately, collectively, We're called the habitation of the Holy Spirit. And in that corporateness, there's a grace, there's a power, and a presence that flows in a corporate gathering where two or three gather, or two or three hundred, or two or three thousand. There's a corporate grace that comes together that the apostle refers to, Jesus refers to. When you come together, one half the song, one half the gift, one half the prophecy, one half the word of knowledge, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can read what happened in the book of Acts when they gathered together, some thousands of them, and it says in Acts chapter 4, the place was shaken where they prayed and worshiped. Why? Because it says they came together and they prayed and they sought God and God shook the place. There's a place to come together and that place is you and me corporately becoming house, the house of God. A habitation for the Holy Spirit. Place of life, power, a house where God works. A special place. See, for me, church and house special place. It's where I got a second start. It's where I've 
received healing. It, it's, it's where I go through people's problems of death and disease and surprise and shock and where the church comes to their side and says, hey, we're, we're with you on this. We can get through it. Where would you be if there was no house, no place, no specialness, no work, no corporateness, no joining together, no uplifting, no burden bearing, no speaking into? Where would you be? I thank God for the house all the time. It's a special place. Scripture, 1 Peter 2, 5. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Notice what Peter says. A spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. In the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle of Moses, tabernacle of David, temple of Solomon. God has always been in the house building. He built three houses. He built the tabernacle of Moses. He built the tabernacle of David. He built the temple of Solomon. Every house was built on a mountain. So you go to Mount Gibeon, go to Mount Zion, and you go to Mount Moriah. Every house had a mountain. Every house had a name. Every house had a destiny. And so the Old Testament, you could not understand worship or what was going on in the heart of the nation without understanding what the house was all about. Why was there a tabernacle? Why was there an approach to God's holy place or most holy place? Why was the tabernacle of David a a jumping theologically of covenants and dispensation at one time when you find Mount Zion in the scripture? Mount Zion takes on a brand new meeting because of the tabernacle of David. No other reason. Tabernacle of David on Mount Zion, all of a sudden, all the Psalms are written and then you read in Hebrews chapter 12 about Mount Zion you can't understand Mount Zion unless you go back to the Old Testament understand that God built a house on Mount Zion and that house had distinctive that house had power to it and that house had something that would mark a person's life it marked all the writers of the Psalms so when the Apostle Peter writes he uses that language as now you know you're the stones for the house and you know You are the house and you offer up not animal, but spiritual sacrifices. So the house analogy, Ephesians 2.21, in whom the whole building fitly fitted together grows. That's a miracle supernatural that any building could grow. Buildings don't grow, but God's building grows to a holy temple on the Lord. And so we're the house. Together in our house, we have sacrifices, an aroma, a presence, a way, a flow, a river, a distinctive, a DNA, a personality. Just like the mothballs in my wife's house, so there's mothballs at City Bible Church, a distinctive spiritual aroma that you would know and remember what that house is like and why it has marked you. And the people that are joined together with you begin to mark your life. It's a house that marks your life. What do we do with the house? We love the house. Here's two scriptures for you. Psalm 26, verse 8. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing, one thing. Sounds like something Jesus brought up, doesn't it? I have desired of the Lord that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty 
of the Lord. And to inquire, to hear, to listen. When you're in love with someone, you see past their blemishes, past their faults. Other people might bring it up, but you don't want to see it, or maybe you choose not to because love sometimes, they say, is blind, sometimes it is. When you love the house of God, you see the beauty of the people. You see the beauty of the house. You enjoy every aspect of it because you're so in love with the house. You don't pick it apart. You don't criticize it. You don't treat it with disrespect. You love the house. Because you love the house, you love to be involved with the house. It's not any big deal for you to give your life to the house, give your all to the house, because you have fallen in love with the house. Because you love that house, you build it, you serve it, you beautify it, and you look around you and everything to you is beautiful. When someone mentions kids ministry, you say beautiful. Youth ministry, beautiful. Outreach, awesome, beautiful, pretty. There's nothing ugly about this. This is a beautiful house. Of course, there's some flaws and blemishes, but the love covers a multitude of sin because you love the house. When people say to you, what church do you go to? Do you just say, well, I go to City Bible Church. It's down the road. Or do you go, I go to an awesome place. What? Yes, our church is awesome. Well, our churches, all churches are awesome. I don't know about all churches. I just know our church is awesome and wonderful and beautiful and presence and healing and forgiveness and reach. And our, our, our church is just, is just oh, oh, I can't even tell you enough. Can I hear an amen out there? That's because you love the house. You don't have to make an excuse for that and try to say, well, I know we have sin and I know we have problems. I know there's some hypocrites and I know, and I know. You don't have to do that. You don't do that with your marriage. You don't do that with your children. If someone says you love your wife, you say, of course I love my wife. Signs and wonders. She signs and I wonder. And so you have a relationship of love to the house, and you see its beauty. Say, man, I love it. I love it. I love my house. I love my house. When you love the house, First Chronicles 29, verse 3, would you turn there and mark this scripture because this is where the series will come from. That whole chapter, First Chronicles chapter 29, will be the chapter that this will come from. First, First Chronicles 29 and verse 3. Just this one verse for right now. Moreover, that is all that happened in chapter 28. David, the house builder, he was going to build the great temple. And God said, David, you can't build me a temple because you're a man of blood, man of war. I want you to have Solomon, your son of peace, to build the house. So David prepared everything he could for Solomon. He prepared all that was needed for the house. Then in verse 3 of chapter 29, he says, Moreover, that is summing up all of chapter 28. Read what he did. And here's a famous and a wonderful phrase. Because I have set my affection on the house of my God. You can set your affection on a lot of things. Oh, I love sports. It has a place for some of my affections. I watch it a lot. I love coffee. It can come or go, but I'd rather have it come. I love Spanish food and all foods, Asian, 
you know, all of them. Because I'll have other ethnic groups come as what happened to the Asian food? I love Asian food. There's some foods I don't like, but I won't mention them. I love the house, and I set my affection on the house of God. I take my love, and I set it on the house. Notice, are you there in verse 3? I have given. Everyone say, I have given. One more time. Notice, to, come on, say it with me, to the house of where? To the house of my God. Everyone read out loud the next phrase. Now here's a man that is not limited, stingy, or worried about it all. He says, you know what? My love pushes me to go over and above. I want to give my life. I've already given you my son. I want to give my own personal wealth. I'm going to make this house beautiful. I believe in this house. It says in the scripture, he gave over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house. Notice my own special treasure of gold and silver. All right, there's two, before I tell you the third one, because this month we'll be doing this, and I want to explain it real quickly, but it comes out of a love for the house, not just out of a commitment to give. There's two areas where all of us are responsible to give. One is our tithe, two is our offerings. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, 11 is a clearest scripture on this, but there's many other scriptures and concepts that we could teach on the whole issue of giving. It says in Malachi chapter 3, bring all. Everyone say the word all. Your tithe goes to the house. It doesn't go to television, doesn't go to radio, doesn't go to missions, it doesn't go other places you want it to go. That's offering. Your tithe is for the house. That's what was taught the entire scriptures. The tithe for the house, bring all. Everyone say all. All the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food. That is nourishment, ministry for us. It would be taking care of the needs of people for us. It would be spiritually in a spiritual house. The food of the house would be released in the ministries and taking care of all the needs around us as we can do that by what is provided for us, the tithe. It says in America, the last statistics that came out, that 17% of all Christians do anything near a tithe. I don't think that's true with our church. That said a high would be 27%. Unheard of, unheard of would be over 50%. Not for us. Our percentage is higher than that. But is it 100%? No. Why? Because this is what people do. If they give, whatever that amount is, $5, 5500 they would say, oh, do you tithe? Yes, of course I tithe. What are you talking about? I tithe. No, I'm not talking about do you give whatever. Do you actually give a tithe? What do you mean a tithe? Well, it's just numbers. Do your math. A tithe is, I know what my tithe is. If you ask me, Frank, did you, did you tithe this month? I would know what you mean by that because the math doesn't lie. I don't just say, well, yeah, I kind of, I kind of, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it, you would know. So, Malachi 3 says, prove me in this. I'll open the windows of heaven, pour out for such a blessing. There'll be no room 
enough for you to receive. I mean, if this is only for Old Testament, New Testament should be beyond even this promise that God would bless you as you give your tithe and that he would rebuke the devourer. And so our first responsibility is to be a tither. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Offerings are undesignated, unlimited amounts given however you want, whenever you want, how much you want. You don't give a percentage for tithe, although we've always done a tithe, and then we do a percentage for missions and a percentage for other things. And then we also rise up when it's time to give offerings. We pray and then give accordingly. Offerings take the spirit of faith. Now, faith harvest, which is our season, is an offering. What is faith harvest? Faith harvest is the giving of a special sacrificial offering that is over and above our tithe. that is unlimited, given according to our faith. Faith harvest takes faith. Faith harvest takes a vision for the house. Why I want to preach on the house and not just giving is because I would rather have you grasp the love for the house and out of that comes the treasures of your life and your heart and part of that is your finance. But if you don't love the house, you'll think that I'm pressuring you or that I'm asking you to do something that's outlandish. Or, boy, don't you know, Frank, that Things are pretty tough right now. Yes, I do. Faith Harvest has been a tradition where everyone or whatever part, I don't know, rise up and we give toward certain things. If this is your season to just rise up and give because you find faith to give, you find money to give, you find resources, you find a joy in it, move into the season and give. If this is your time to pass by this year because you're in a tough time or you can't give or, you, you know, faith harvest and here I can't even, you know, my business is, then be released from any of the guilt of that or the pressure of that. I don't want you to feel that. And I don't want to feel it when I preach it. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I want you to love the house. I want you to believe God for a miracle. I want you to give to Faith Harvest if you can, and I want you to do it joyfully. But if you can't do that, if that's not your time, then be released from it in Jesus' name and not feel any undue pressure during this economical weirdness. Can I hear an amen? 